Chapter 2. The Gods Must Be Crazy It may give us a sense of strength and empowerment to realize that our own psyche is a kind of Mount Olympus, home of goddesses, gods, and heroic archetypal figures. But lest we allow ourselves to become too grandiose about our divine heritage, let it be stated at the very outset that we are not often aware of the divine figures within us until they become annoyed with us and start to act up. If we have a background in any one of the numerous psychologies that compete with each other on today's market, we are probably used to thinking of a psychological complex in terms of some, some issue with absent daddy, unfeeling mommy, or the host of other relatives and siblings who inhabit the current psychological landscape. The notion put forth by Jungians and other archetypal psychologists that a complex is based primarily upon the inharmonious or just plain cranky actions of one, or of one of our inner deities may seem more than a bit strange to us, but this is precisely how our ancestors thought of it. In Homer's Iliad, the great heroes of the Greeks have a habit of taking beautiful young girls captive as slaves. Not a very politically correct thing to do by today's standards, but let's just let that one go for the moment and continue to the main point. The hero Achilles takes a fancy to one of King Agamemnon's captive slave girls and simply steals her. Since Agamemnon is the commander of all the Greek forces and Achilles the most celebrated warrior, this throws the whole Greek army into a major snit and brings the Trojan War temporarily to a halt. Eventually, Achilles is forced to return the girl and apologize publicly, but his only real apology consists of his claim that he was possessed by some deity who impelled him to steal her. In other words, he simply shrugs his shoulders and says, I couldn't help myself. Some god made me do it. Some modern forms of psychology may brand this as a form of denial, but Achilles' attitude was essentially the attitude of ancient Greek psychology in general. It is also, to a certain degree, the attitude of contemporary archetypal psychology. There are, of course, some important differences. For example, ancient Greek psychology gives little recognition to the parental or family complexes that form the background of most contemporary psychology. While archetypal psychologists look for these issues in the behavior of the archetypes themselves, though it must be admitted that they are less concerned with mommy and daddy than, for instance, the Freudians. But how does this process happen? How do the gods become active in our lives? And why do they choose to reach us principally when they are troubled? Look at it this way. The goddesses and gods may be regarded as more than human, larger than life. Their blasts of thunder and storm, tempests of rage, and turbulent love affairs all mark them as forces of nature, actresses and actors on a vast, primordial stage. They do things on a grand scale, as befits the conduct of deities. 
This primordial grandeur is present within each and every one of us, but for the most part, we remain unaware of it. We go on about our ordinary lives without much concern for the mythic dimension that lies within. We certainly don't think of ourselves as Homeric heroes, stormy goddesses, or divine figures. And for the most part, our inner deities may be content to remain sleeping in our unconscious, or deeper still, in the collective unconscious that links us with all of humanity. They may feel no particular compulsion to swim up through the depths and make themselves known to our ordinary waking consciousness. Unless, of course, they really need to. Many or most of us, perhaps all of us, contain within our souls one or two of these deities who are of primary importance, who form the cornerstones and foundations of our personalities. In Afrocentric traditions like Kambombol or Vudon, such a deity is called the master of your head, meaning that the particular deity is the master or primary determinant of your personal consciousness. In such traditions, there are religious specialists who are skilled at identifying such a deity and, through ritual and initiation, bringing the worshipper into harmony with her or his master of the head. Here in the Western world, we no longer possess such specialists, although it is here that the astrologer may be of great help. The astrologer sees these inner deities in terms of planets, signs, and other astrological themes. The astrologer is, in many ways, very competent to identify the master of your head by directing your attention to the planet or planets that plays the largest role in your life, and that sets the that sets the tone for your personality. This may be well this may well be the planet that is giving you the most trouble. As we begin to grow psychologically, we begin to take more and more control over our true nature, our real individuality. When we grow strong enough in terms of our self-knowing, or as the Jungians call it, our individuation, we may begin to seem a little bit larger than life as well. At such a time, the god goddesses or god and planet who best represents our emerging individuality may very well awaken. In most cases, such a figure awakens when we are at a time of crisis, when our individuality or sense of self faces a challenge and when we are called upon to be ourselves in a dramatic and powerful way. Astrologers may be of help here too, for the astrologer is trained to identify the times at which such transitional challenges may occur, and to identify the planets and hence the archetypes that are involved. So here we are, trying to gain greater knowledge of ourselves, trying with such passion and intensity that the waters of the unconscious begin to stir, the underground volcanoes in our souls begin to erupt, and a divine figure blasts up out of the depths and says, I am the master here, pay attention to me.
And so the archetype begins to play its role as an actor upon the stage of our ordinary lives. But in most cases, our lives are still just that, ordinary, and we are not equipped to play host to a powerful divinity. We are not prepared for blasts of thunder and storm, tempests of rage, turbulent love affairs, or the other activities of these forces of nature. We are not prepared for our homes and workplaces to become a vast primordial stage upon which wild deities perform. So when we first meet the gods, it seems as if they're crazy. Let us illustrate this point with an example from recent artistic history. In the late 1920s, just before Hitler's rise to power, Germany went through a great explosion of artistic creativity during the last days of the Weimar Republic. This was the era of the great expressionistic silent movies and the great Berlin cabaret shows. The most renowned writers on the cabaret scene were playwright Bertolt Brecht and his musical partner, the composer Kurt Weill. Weill was married to a remarkable cabaret singer by the name of Lot Lenya. Though not conventionally beautiful, Lot was highly erotic and, as a former prostitute, she was also sometimes rather daring. Her stage routines with black fishnet stockings, a top hat, and high heels were deliberately provocative and helped to set the sexual tones of the era. Now, the fact that Lot Linnea more or less defined the erotic sensibilities of her time should make it clear to us that she was strongly under the influence of the archetype of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Astrologers know this goddess under her Roman and planetary name as Venus, so we don't even need to look at Lot's horoscope to figure out that she was dominated by the planet Venus. Her Venus was so powerful that it influenced the world around her. It was an archetypal rather than a merely personal Venus and quite obviously formed the cornerstone of her personality. Many astrologers prefer to look at Venus as a planet of marriage. This is quite an ancient tradition, but as we argued in our earlier book, it is not correct. Venus was never regarded as the goddess of marriage. That honor went to Juno, and when young women were married in ancient Greece and Rome, they actually surrendered all their pretty things, their Venus gear, to the temple of Venus or Aphrodite, to symbolize that they had left her behind and gone over to the world of Hera or Juno instead. Actually, Venus was the goddess of purely erotic love, which, to the ancients, was a very different thing than married love. Venus was an archetype of sexual freedom, for she chose her numerous lovers entirely according to her own whim, and was generally uninterested in whether her choices were socially appropriate or even reasonable. She simply did whatever she wanted with whomever she pleased. We might suspect that a Venus woman might have some difficulties in an ordinary marriage situation, but in many cases, the Venus woman will succeed in bringing her freestyle eroticism under control and channeling it into the confines 
of an intimate married relationship. However, if Venus is too strong or too wild, then she may begin to act out, and things may begin to get a bit crazy. And all the poor Venus girl will be able to say is, the goddess made me do it. Let's get back to Kurt and Lot. If we look at the stories about Venus, we can see that although she had countless love affairs, she had four major relationships in her life. One of these was her husband, Vulcan. Greek, Hephaestus. This god, who was lame and ugly and spent all his time working as the divine blacksmith, seems like an unlikely mate for the goddess of love. But it was Jupiter, Greek, Zeus, the king of the gods, who arranged their marriage. So they didn't have much to say about it. So here we have a talented but brooding and an inarticulate man, not very attractive, mated to a wild, erotic love goddess. It is interesting to note how often this kind of match occurs in real life. Venus's other stable relationships, which is not a great choice of words in her case, were with Adonis, whom she adored, though it was short-lived, with Mars, the war god, her passionate lover, and with Mercury, the clever god of communications and the mind, who was also the captain of the nymphs, and who appreciated a woman simply for her sexual prowess without getting attached to her at all which made him a rather appropriate partner for Venus, who had the same instincts. But in this case, we are mostly concerned with Vulcan, because Kurt Weil was a Vulcan type. No, we're not talking about a planet here, and in fact, many people take on the characteristics of archetypes and deities that are not part of our astrological sky, but we will take up this question later in the book. The more Lot flirted and cavorted on the stage, the more her quiet, inarticulate husband, a thin fellow with thick glasses, turned inward towards his writing. Sometimes the results were brilliant. Anyone who sees Lot Linnea singing the Berthold Weil ballad Pirate Jenny from the old German film version of the Three Penny Opera witness a performance so powerful it brings chills to the spine. But despite their archetypal power, the two were not happy as a couple, and soon Lot's controlling Venus began to act up in style, compelling her into an endless series of casual sexual affairs. But if the goddess was crazy, so was the god. Whale turned even more deeply inward ignoring his wife's obvious infidelities in favor of more and more writing. The gods made them do it. We have been unable to obtain exact birth times for either Lot or Kurt, but even a quick look at the day of Lot Lenya's birth reveals the source of her out-of-control Venusian behavior. Lot's Lot Lenya's Venus is in Sagittarius, which in most cases would not be considered a particularly erotic or even feminine Venus. Ordinarily, such a Venus might be regarded 
as a sign of independence, of emotional detachment, and of a temperament that is more interested in personal freedom than relationships. Note that Venus is also conjunct the moon, so that two of the most powerful feminine archetypes combine into one to create a distinctly feminine, although somewhat strong-willed and free-spirited personality. But what is especially important to our own theme is that Venus and the Moon are hemmed in on each side by Saturn and Uranus, and they are opposed by Pluto. With the opposite poles of limitation, Saturn, and freedom, Uranus, exerting equal force, Venus and the Moon are placed under tremendous pressure. Imagine that you have a small rubber ball in your hands, and that you are squeezing it as hard as you can. Eventually, it will shoot out of your grasp and into the air. This is precisely what happened to Lot Lenya's Moon-Venus conjunction. Caught between powerful opposing forces, the goddess was forced out of the unconscious and onto the stage of Lot's waking life. In fact, the experience was so powerful that it became archetypal and forced itself onto the stage of the world at large. Beneath the rather obvious Saturn-Uranus conflict, the conjunction of Moon and Venus is further fueled by the vast underground power of Pluto, which often shows collective forces much greater than any individual. Lot Lenya's very public Venus was colored by the freedom of Sagittarius, the provocative androgyny of Uranus, the pessimistic but sensuous darkness of Saturn, and powered by the dark, somewhat perverse force of Pluto, which was discovered in the same year that the Three Penny Opera was filmed, and which heralded the rise of the Plutonian Third Reich that rose on Weimar's overstressed ashes. Lotlenia's rare blend of archetypes was perfectly suited to make her one of the living symbols of the cabaret era's desperate, decadent, but supremely creative moment in history. Those of you who are familiar with mythology may remember that Venus's husband, Vulcan or Hephaestus, the god of the forge, was a lame and altogether unattractive fellow, and that he buried himself in his creative work while his wife flaunted her amorous escapades all over Mount Olympus. Of course, Vulcan was a magnificent craftsman, and his work was so fine that it was literal, literally magical. His introverted focus on his artistry was responsible for a great deal of beauty in the world, but his soul was filled with resentment towards his faithless wife. One story tells us that he even trapped her with her lo lover Mars in a magical net and hoisted her up so that all the gods might witness her shame. But for the most part, he was far too inarticulate to raise his voice in protest. Kurt Weil's horoscope reveals a supremely introverted personality, as we might expect from an individual whose life was dominated by the archetype of Vulcan. There is a way to plot Vulcan in the horoscope, using various astrological programs. The astrology of software program, SolarFire, 
places Vulcan at 14 degrees Pisces, very close to his sun at 11 degrees Pisces. Vulcan is never very far away from the sun. What is truly illuminating is that this position of Vulcan, along with the sun, becomes the focal point of a T-square, a very sensitive placement and the activating principle of his life, involving Jupiter, Pluto, Uranus, and the lunar nodes in his chart. Note also that the position of Black Moon Lilith is in exact opposition, opposition to his natal sun. Also part of this T-square, actually making it a grand mutable cross. There is no doubt the role that Lilith played out in his life was portrayed indeed by Lot. The opposition of Pluto and Gemini to a Saturn-Uranus conjunction in Sagittarius may have impelled Lot Linnea toward the stage, but a similar combination in her husband's chart had a very different effect. In Kurt Boyle's case, the opposition of Pluto to Uranus, he was two years younger than Lot, and Saturn had already moved on, though wild and crazy Uranus remained in Sagittarius, exerts its archetypal force on an incredible cluster of planets in the sign Pisces. Whenever a planet stands at a 90 degree angle from either side of an opposition, we call it a T-square, and it symbolizes enormous pressure. In this case, no fewer than four planets stand midway between the Uranus-Pluto opposition. The Sun, Moon, Mercury, and Mars are all in Pisces. Pisces is a moody, introverted sign, and Whale had a temperament to match. Like Vulcan, he may have also considered himself somewhat unlovely or unlovable. In the shining and glittery world of the Weimar cabarets, he was a quiet man with thick glasses, a Jewish intellectual, the son of a rabbi. He remained immersed in the great Piscean ocean of the unconscious, bonded to his piano like Vulcan to his forge, responding in true Piscean fashion to the enormous collective pressures brought to bear upon him by producing some of the greatest music of his time. How did he feel about his wife's unfaithful romps through the demimonde of Berlin's cabaret scene? Like a true Vulcan, Whale was too inarticulate to even comment on the matter. Of course, sometimes the crazy-making tendencies of our inner gods can have a positive impact on our lives. In the previous chapter, we mentioned the split that occurred between Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. When we examine the astrological charts of both men, their parting of the ways seems not only logical, but inevitable.